Alright folks, welcome back to the podcast, One Man, One Tree and a Hill. I'm your host, Jared Waters. I have a special guest today, tonight, wherever you are in the world. This is Miss Sarah B. Ladies and gentlemen, Miss Sarah B. How are you, madam? Hello, hello, Jared. It's so good to hear from you. I was so happy when you reached out. I do, I miss um, your humor and your wit. We had a lot of interesting conversations on Talma. Yeah, Talma. If you didn't know, Talma was this this program where teachers from America would go to Israel and teach for the summer. And that's where we met in 2017, 16 or 17? Yes, 17. 17. We were, both, were you in Ayanot as well? No, I was in Migdala Hammock, the north. But you were too, though. Weren't you in the north as well? No, so I was in um, Ayanot. was a youth village. I think it was central. It was close enough to Tel Aviv, close enough to Jerusalem. Um, and they would bus us. It could be it was a little further in the north. I'm going to Google it. But they would bus us to Zderot, which was a city on the border of Gaza. Uh, really? Usually you went all the way to Gaza? You guys went to Gaza? Really? Yes. Not, not, well, it's directly on the border. Like when you stand at the border and you look over, you can see into Gaza, especially at night when the lights are there. Uh-huh. Um, but I, I chose that specific location because I just felt like um, a lot of the students there have severe PTSD. A lot of the kids mm-hmm. live in a war zone, essentially. Gaza is the first place that's hit. It's the hardest hit uh, with rockets and missiles whenever that happens. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so it was a very interesting experience to be working there. Um, I know Youth Village. I'm Googling this at the moment to recall the exact location. And to the people who don't know, you are Orthodox, yes? Would you consider yourself... That's what we were just talking before the podcast started. We are talking about... Would you consider yourself modern? What are the levels of orthodox? Okay, so I'm going to backtrack for a sec. Ayanot is located in central Israel, so I was correct about that. Um, the levels of, of religious observance are very interesting because there's no one Jew. Um, and many people who may have been born into a certain level would later on leave, join maybe a stronger one or a, a, a bit of a less observant one. So I'll try to recap this. There's a pyramid of sorts. Okay. Um, I would say that at the tip, the top of the pyramid, the most observant would be Hasidish, otherwise known as Hasidic. Hasidic. Why do the they Jews call it different? The... Why do they say it? Why do they say it two different ways? Well, Hasidish is the 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 way that the the Jew the Jews from that community will pronounce it. Okay. Hasidic is usually the way that a, a non-observant or a non a secular person will pronounce it. Uh, it's it's similar to you know how um, an Israeli will say. Yala, right? Go, yeah. Or sababa in that term, but an American who's trying to replicate the word will be like yala or sababa <laughs> because it's not their native tongue. So it's just Hasidish is, is in the Yiddish language, the Germanic language that the um, Hasidish Jews speak. And so that is the pronunciation. But people who are not from the community will say Hasidic. The same way terms like Shabbat will be pronounced Sabbath by someone who's not Jewish or, um, you know, Chesed, which is a Hebrew term for uh, charity work, will be pronounced as Hesed because it's a little harder to pronounce the Ch in yeah. the in the, um, the native tongue. But Chesedish is really at the top of the pyramid. These are the Jews with the very long side locks, the black fur hats, the uh, the black coats that reach down to their knees. Um, they tend to be very observant of the letter of the law, but they take it a step further. 
so an example, I'll stick with modesty or Sabbath as the example. Um, Sabbath, for example, comes in Friday night and it comes out uh, Saturday evening when three stars are out. So Hasidish people will wait an extra 40 minutes, known as Rabbeinu Tam. They'll wait an extra amount of time after those three stars come out, as if to say, we're going to go above and beyond. We're going to wait for more than the time that's required. Right. Or with modesty, for example, the laws of modesty are that a woman must cover her um, collarbone, elbows, knees, right? So a lot of people in the Hasidic community will take it a step further and say, we're not just going to cover, you know, the basic collarbone, we'll, we'll close the top button on our shirts, which is above the collarbone. Um, or a married woman is supposed to cover her hair. So in the Hasidic community, many women, when they get married uh, the night before or after their wedding, they'll shave their head shave their hair completely, oh, wow. um, and then wear a head covering on top of that as well. So the Hasidic community is usually the spirit of the law, the letter of the law, and then an extra mile. Um, they're very stringent with their laws, um, and they have a lot, of, a lot of rituals, a lot of practices which they follow. So usually a step beneath the Hasidic community would be considered the ultra-Orthodox and the Orthodox community. So these are the communities where you'll find white shirts, black pants, um, black hats, not the fur ones, but the, the regular black, like Borsalino type hats. Um, a lot of these women that are married will wear wigs. Um, again, the Orthodox and ultra-Orthodox community are known as yeshivish because many of their children attend yeshiva, which is the, the religious school right. um, for Jewish children. So they follow the spirit of the law. They don't necessarily go above. Um, so if, for example, the laws of modesty are, you know, collarbone, knees, elbows, they'll cover just that. They won't necessarily go a step above. Um, when it comes to Shabbat, if Shabbat is supposed to be out when three stars come out, let's say at nine o'clock, they won't wait for 940, the extra time, not necessarily. Now here's where it gets confusing, right? Um, someone who is from the Orthodox community could decide to take upon themselves an extra step that people in the Hasidic community might do. And someone who's in the Hasidic community might say, you know, it's tough for me to take on all these extra, um, extra, I don't like to use the word obligations, but all of these extra measurements. So I'm going to do something a little bit less than someone in the Orthodox community might do. So it's not a very black and white X, Y, I belong to this community. I only do this right. kind of practice. It's, it's whatever you're feeling spiritually. It's whatever your commitment to God is at the moment. Um, did your views then, change when you got younger towards when you got older? Like the way you were raised it completely different than what you are now, how you practice? And that's, yeah, so that's what's so complex about Judaism is that people can, can really change on the levels of the pyramid. So you have Hasidish is the, considered the most observant. Then you have ultra-Orthodox and Orthodox. And then beneath that, you have uh, modern Orthodox. So modern Orthodox is considered a lot more um, open. They do follow the letter of the law, but are a bit more lenient with it. So, for example, again, with modesty, um, members of the uh, modern Orthodox community, women might feel comfortable wearing sleeveless tops, right? Um, but not pants, necessarily. Okay. On the other hand, you could have, um, with Shabbat, people who are modern Orthodox, you know, they'll keep Shabbat, but um, they might be fine reading books that are secular, Whereas someone from a Hasidic community will say, no, to preserve the sanctity and the holiness of Shabbat, I will only read, um, you know, Torah or Talmudic textbooks or Jewish children's books. I won't read, you know, philosophy or secular newspapers. Um, and th this is just a very surface, barely scratching yeah, the surface. Yeah, yeah. 
Uh, and then underneath modern Orthodox, you have the Reform and Conservative communities, which are a lot more traditional. They don't necessarily follow the spirit of the law. So Reform and Conservative communities, for example, might want to keep Shabbat by having a traditional Friday night dinner with the family, but they're okay with driving in a car to synagogue. Uh, whereas the ultra-Orthodox and the Hasidic communities would follow the strictness of the law when it comes to on Shabbat, no technology, no cars, no phones, no lights, no ovens. Um, and then you'd have like a reform and conservative community where, uh, you know, one is a little bit more stringent. One will say we're going to have a Friday night family dinner, but we'll watch TV after or we'll drive in a car to synagogue. Um, and I believe reform might be a little bit more open in their interpretations. They might say, you know, um, we can sing Friday night songs, but we won't necessarily have a Friday night meal every week. Um, and I believe there's even more of crossovers. Like you can have a conservative community that's trying to be a little bit more, um, per the letter of the law. So they would try to be a combination of Orthodox and conservative. So they would call themselves conservatox. Um, and then I'm not sure what the cross is between reform and, and, and conservative. I'm certain that there is something. But usually at the bottom bottom of the tier, you have uh, past reform. Reform is they try to keep some some extent of tradition in the law, but they really don't keep a lot. Beneath that, you have what we call traditional. And traditional are the folks that are, are Jewish, but don't really keep anything per se. But I mean, there's a funny term uh, that a lot of Jews use. It's called matzah ball Jew. Like I'm a matzah ball Jew in that I don't necessarily pray on the high holidays. I don't keep Shabbat. I don't keep the laws of kosher. Um but, you know, I'll eat matzo ball soup. Um, I'll take pride in Israel as my country. I will be familiar with who Moses is, who God is. Um, I'll talk to God in my own language. So these are kind of traditional Jews. And what's, so this is the pyramid. You have like Hasidish is the most observant. You have Orthodox, ultra-Orthodox, modern Orthodox, reform, conservative, traditional. That's the pyramid. And it, from What's interesting is that people can go from one to another. I have a friend who was born to a Hasidic community. She, when she was a teenager, she decided this is too hard for her. This is not the type of lifestyle that she wants per se. So she veered all the way to traditional where she kept nothing. You know, she ate bacon. She didn't keep Shabbat. um, She dated an Italian Catholic guy. And then at some point in her 20s, she turned around and started saying, I miss spirituality. I miss God. But my Hasidic community is not for me. It was too strict. Um, I want to live in a community where I can listen to the radio. I can have internet. I can have Facebook. So she, right now, in her 20s, ended up in the modern Orthodox community. And then I have a friend who was born into a conservative community, went to Israel, spent a year studying in Jerusalem, felt this incredible pull towards Judaism, towards um, spirituality and God. And so she ended up marrying a Hasidic Jew, a Breslover Hasid. And so now she's living in the city of Tzfat, which is considered, uh, you know, like the epicenter of spirituality and art. So So where does Miss Sarah, where does Miss Sarah fall into? Where are you on this pyramid? (laughs) I've had a very interesting journey. Um, My family is... Right now, though, we're going to, we're going to go to where your family is. So right now... My family right now is ultra-Orthodox. I myself have veered a bit more towards the modern Orthodox community. So today, if you're asking me in 2020 where I am, I would say that I ascribe more with the modern Orthodox community. But my family is ultra I got it right. You got it right, Jared. <laughs> I did. I actually have the pyramid. I actually was reading the pyramid, and I was like, when you were describing I was like, oh, I just read this pyramid. I was like trying to see where you were on the pyramid, and I was like, I think I, 
modern orthodox what made you what made you think what about my personality made you well think i remember when we were like when we were on the beach you were they were like they were they were hasidic people before we went to the beach we we're like in some uh, it wasn't a it's like when we were all like meeting up before we did like shabbat and i was telling you this story about how i met with this met with this orthodox person we had this like hour-long conversation on the bus and we we're talking about like swamp people and all these shows and then you gave me the pyramid of like, this is where he is. This is where I am. He's like, I'm orthodox. And I was like, you are orthodox? And I was like, look, your hair is all the way out. And then you were like, this is how it is. And I was like, oh, okay. So now when I meet people, it's like, okay, this is Hasidic. This is, and I just always like kept the pyramid. And you're like more open to a conversation too. Like you were never like shutting down anything. You were more like, okay, this is who I am. How do you think about this? And I think that you're the only person I know who's up for any debate. I really appreciate that. Thank that's you, Darren. That's good. I, I think that's I think that's a good quality for a person to be open, open and not to to be. How can I say this? To be impactful, but not trying to hurt anyone. You just want to impact the conversation. So it's good to get someone's right. view of everything else. I appreciate that. I had a very interesting experience with Tom at the program because honestly, when I received the advertisement for the first time, it was phrased very much as this is a Jewish organization in Israel where you're teaching children. And the person who had sent it to me phrased it as this is like a, a religious observant program. And so in my mind, even as I'm like in the airport, I'm thinking, oh, okay, so this is going to be just like my yeshiva experience. This is going to be either all girls or maybe they're going to have separate buildings, one for the oh, male wow. volunteers, one for the female volunteers, and we're going to have, you know, weekly Shabbat programs where there's like the synagogue and the prayers and all kosher food, and in my mind, I was walking into a program where it was literally every single participant was either an Orthodox Jew or maybe a modern Orthodox Jew, but in my mind, the image I had is that everybody practiced Judaism. You just seen this big cross chain, just me walking <laughs> This is like, oh, what's up? Hey. I arrive in the airport and I see people that are black, white, Christian, conservative, reform. Nobody is wearing long sleeves. I was the only person wearing long sleeves. And I walk up to this girl and I'm like, are, are you with Talma? And she's like, yeah, we're going to have a great time. And then she makes a comment. She's like, you're a lot of, a lot of cute guys here. I'm excited. And I was like, oh boy, you are not. <laughs> this is not an Orthodox. It was very interesting. Um, let's, we'll, we'll come to Talma. Let's, I want to go to like, let's go. Where are you from? Let's go from the beginning. Where are you? Where were you born? Where was Miss Sarah B born? If someone had like a book was, and we're reading chapter one. Where were you born? I was born in Brooklyn, New York. Really? Uh, born and raised? A, yes. Flatbush is the, the neighborhood that generally covers like the Avenue P to Avenue J area. Um, it, there's a very big Orthodox community in Brooklyn, in Flatbush. A lot of synagogues, a lot of kosher restaurants. Um, and and we, get, we have a lot of other neighborhoods with a lot of Italian Catholic neighbors, a lot of Muslim. There's a big Pakistani neighborhood here. Um, and then there's the very Hasidish enclave of Borough Park, which is a, a huge swath of land that's just a lot of Hasidic Jews, Satmar, Baba, different sects. Were you so I was of, born in the Flatbush Orthodox community. So two-parent household, we have two-parent household, big family, yeah. small family? Yeah, um, you'll find that divorce used to be pretty rare in the um, Orthodox community. 
in the past two decades, I'd say it's become a lot more popular. The numbers have risen a lot. And that led to the formation of an organization called the Shalom Task Force, which is also very interesting. It's the first Orthodox-created, Orthodox-led organization that deals with um, domestic abuse and uh, marital issues in the Orthodox community. But um, I, I was blessed to have both of my parents. They're both Israeli. They, my oh. dad finished the military and came to New York to look for a job after the military. He was a paramedic in the Air Force. What would you what is what would you say your dad is? Where did he come from before Israel? Where his where does his people? Because people kept. I remember when people were asking, "Are you Brazilian?" You're like, "No, I'm not Brazilian." <laughs> I get a lot because of my skin. Um, my dad's family is from Morocco. My mom's oh. family is from Egypt. So oh, we are brown. an interesting Moroccan Egyptian breed. Um, Brazil comes in because my grandfather, my 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 mom's father. He was a rabbi in Jerusalem, and then he got a call to a city in Sao Paulo, Brazil, basically. There was a Jewish community there, and they had no um, leadership. They didn't have a community rabbi. They didn't have a shochet. Shochet is the Hebrew term for the man who, um, the butcher, essentially. Yeah. It's the guy who the slaughters meat. meat to make it kosher. There's like a whole set of laws involved in that. Uh, so they didn't have the shochet, and they didn't have the mohel. The mohel is the man the, the man who does circumcision on newborn babies, essentially, the rabbi who does that. And so my grandfather was trained. He was a trained shochet. He was a trained mohel. And he agreed to take his family to Sao Paulo, Brazil. And my mom was maybe seven or eight when he moved the family to Sao Paulo, where uh, he became the rabbi of the Jewish community there. And he stayed there for about... 10 years or so training a shochet, training a mohel. Does your mom know Portuguese? She does. My mom speaks seven languages. Sweet uh, fluently, which is super cool. So mama's, mama's from Morocco. Mama's from Egypt. Yes. Where in her, Egypt? Her side is from Egypt. Um, and then my dad's side's from Morocco. I was in Marrakesh. But they themselves were both born in Israel. My mom was born in Jerusalem and my dad was born in, well, my dad was born in Morocco. But when he was two years old, his entire village in Morocco, they all got up and they walked. They literally traveled by foot to Israel because they thought that the Messiah was coming. Um, and so they, they established themselves in Israel. It, it was a time when um, Israeli government was mostly white, Ashkenaz, European Jews, and they did not have the best views of dark-skinned Sephardic Jews. And so they would place them in these little seaside villages that were not really built or established yet. Well, how did and your so dad feel whole... about like being like going to a country where he thought it'd be a whole lot better, right? He thought it'd be a whole lot better. Did he just dis- feel like discrimination, like being? There was a lot of discrimination. My grandfather actually died. Uh, my grandfather oh. was a very wealthy man who sold jewelry in Casablanca. He had a house. He had servants. He had a whole, you know, household. And then he moved to Israel. And when he arrived in Israel. Him, his family, his entire village was basically sent to the city of Ashkelon, which was rocks. It was literally, they had no buildings, they had no infrastructure, they had no sewer, no piping, nothing. It was just huts and rocks, and they were set to work by the government at the time. They were told, okay, you're going to build this city up from scratch. And um, the kids would literally just play in the streets in the mud. They didn't have schools established. There were no buildings built. And so this, this whole community of Moroccans joined other immigrants, and together they physically built the city up with their hands. With their, their They were not skilled laborers. They learned. Would um, they be considered they the Arabic up. Jewish community? Would that be a proper term? 
it could because a lot of these people came from Yemen, Morocco, yeah. Tunisia, Libya. Um, most of them spoke Arabic, if not, you know, um, their own native tongues from their own cities. But they were definitely mistreated and looked down upon as inferior. And Yala's and Arabic too, right? Today. I'm sorry? Yala's Arabic as well. Yala is actually an Arabic term. It's an yes. Arabic term. I've noticed a lot of the Arabic terms are like mixed together. A lot of them. Yeah, Hebrew yeah. is colloquial because there was there was biblical Hebrew, which mm-hmm. came from Tanakh, the Torah. But that Hebrew is not the spoken Hebrew of today. Um, the Hebrew that's spoken today is, is a combination of um, biblical Hebrew with Arabic words, a lot of Semitic languages, some French words. You'd be surprised. So growing up, so it's good that your parents like embraced you with this culture. So you know exactly where you're from. You knew that my dad came from Morocco. Mom came from Egypt. Uh, what languages does your mom speak? Let's list them all. So my mom speaks Hebrew because she was born in Israel. Can. Um, she speaks Portuguese because she was in Brazil and Dubai. Sao Paulo for a long time. She speaks Spanish because it's very similar to Portuguese and she learned it while she was in Brazil. And then when she turned 16, she needed an Orthodox Jewish high school to attend and there were none in Brazil, Sao Paulo. So my grandfather took the whole family and moved them to America. Oh. Um, instead of going back to Israel, they moved to America. So my mom came to New York when she was 16, and the only Orthodox Jewish observant high schools at the time were Hasidish in Borough Park. And so my mom learned both English and Yiddish at the same time at the age of 16. She, the, it was very interesting because the principal put her in a first grade classroom for a couple of weeks so that she could learn English and Yiddish. And she was a very proud 16-year-old teenager in a first-grade classroom, but she pushed herself to learn the language. And so she learned both um, Yiddish and English at the same time in, in the span of a couple of weeks, couple of months, because she had to get you know, as quickly fluent as she could to go back to a high school classroom. So she speaks Hebrew, English, Yiddish, Portuguese, Spanish, and she speaks Latino fluently because of my grandfather. Um, who spoke it fluently and taught it to her. Ladino is the traditional um, Spartic language that's spoken. It's like a Judeo-Spanish language um, that was preserved by Spartic Jews. How does what? And how she many... speaks. Go ahead. Sorry. Go ahead. What's the last one? Um, so she speaks Ladino, and the last one she speaks Arabic because she and my father would converse in Arabic when they didn't want the kids to understand what they were talking yeah, that's about. What I was guessing. I was like, you when know? is she gonna say Arabic? I gotta. So yes. what languages do so you speak? So I speak uh, English, Hebrew, Arabic, and I'm trying to learn Spanish. I've given up on Ladino and Portuguese. <laughs> too much. So when too you much. so my, are, oh wait, my mom also speaks French. Sorry, because so that's eight languages. Um, that's eight languages. That's eight languages. Yeah, I'm sorry. Saying correct. She, speaks, she also speaks fluent French. Um, because my dad, who is you know from Casablanca originally, speaks English, Hebrew, Arabic, and French. So my mom and dad would speak in Arabic and French. In French, too. It was, I don't know if you heard of this show. Have you heard of the show called Rami? I've not. What's it Rami. about? Rami. It's about um, these Arabic Arabic Muslims that live in uh, New York, and they're from Egypt. Rami's a stand-up comedian, but like him and his, the father and his wife, they would speak in French. They spoke Arabic, but they would speak in French to each other. That's pretty cool. I'll check it out. Rami. It's a really good show. Very, very, very different, I think, but you would like it. It's funny. It's like very, like, it's funny. So, you growing up, are you the youngest, oldest, middle? Where do you I'm fall? The really, the oldest, the oldest of how many? Six. Sweet Moses, really? Yes. 
And that's actually considered a pretty average sized family for um, Orthodox. It's funny because there's there's a mitzvah, there's a commandment in the Jewish um, Torah, pru or vu, which means you shall be fruitful and multiply. It's essentially, it's like a, a positive commandment of God that, that parents should bring children into this world and raise them to be good and kind and charitable and decent humans and teach them the Torah and teach them the laws of Judaism. So the more, this is a theory I have, it's not proven, but the more religious <laughs> a family is, the more kids they have. So in the Hasidic community, it's not uncommon to see families with like eight kids, 10 kids, um, and they're adorable. You'll see these kids in matching outfits walking around in Borough Park. Um, and a lot of times the older kids are holding the hands of the younger kids. So it's, it's pretty common to have families with a lot of kids. And then you have the ultra-Orthodox and the Orthodox communities where it's very common to have between, you know, four to six to even eight kids. Um, I think it's Not as many as the Hasidish families, right. but usually... Well, a lot, of Hasidic, a lot of Hasidic families, when they're down south, since I'm from Florida, we would, you know, down south in North Carolina, we would see these people, and we just think they're regular southern people, because everyone else had big families. So we're just like, oh, I think they're from Texas. Yeah, I think that's where they're from, Texas. And you're like, no, we're Hasidic. <laughs> like, oh, all right, cool. Yeah. What is it like being yeah. the oldest? So what's the what's the age range? So the oldest is um, what? I am 28. I have a and brother who's 26. What's the baby? Sister who's 24. The youngest is 16. So there's like bang bang. So okay, you're the oldest. How many girls? It's like twenty eight, twenty six, twenty four, twenty, eighteen, sixteen. Wow, two year gap for everybody. And it's like girl boy, girl boy, girl boy. <laughs> wow, that had to be amazing growing up in like a big family like that. Who are you closer to? Like, if you would, are you the mama bear sister or? I am. I'm the. Why is she telling me to wash the dishes and do my homework? I hate her sister. Oh, you're that person. Authoritative. <laughs> but I'm also the... I have I have boy troubles, but I don't want to talk to my mom about it because I'm not supposed to have boy troubles. Yalla. So I'll go to Sarah <laughs> and I'll talk to her at 2 in the morning. <laughs> sister. So, all right. So you're growing up. So when you're probably like 2, you have your first sibling. What's like elementary school growing up? Did you go to... What type of school did you go to? Did you go to like a public school or did your parents want to? No. So usually um, in the modern Orthodox and up on the pyramid going upwards, you'll have very specific schools that are only for your community. So for example, um, Hasidish and and ultra-Orthodox Orthodox, they have yeshiva. So the girls' schools is all girls, only girls, usually all female teachers. It's called a Beis Yaakov. And then the boys' schools are all boys, usually all male teachers, and it's called a yeshiva. So and they what... differ because the boys' focus is mostly learning Gemara and Talmudic text, mm-hmm. which is something they're trained to do at a young age or any third, fourth grade, up until, you know, 18, 19. And the girls' focus is more on laws, like the laws of modesty, the laws of kosher, um, learning about Psalms, learning about the Bible, learning about the prophets, um, the texts, the stories, Jewish history. So... Um, I went to a base Yaakov, an all-girls yeshiva. Um, and this is also done for everything. This is done elementary school, high school. Now, the modern Orthodox community is different in that their schools are co-ed. So they will oh, have really? yeshivas. Yeah, the modern Orthodox community will have a yeshiva, depending really on the level of religiosity. Um, they'll have yeshivas that are, are where the students are taught Talmud, they are taught Torah, they have prayers, but sometimes it's co-ed. The girls and boys will learn together. 
So what's it like as a brown girl being inside this this school with all other girls? What's your first memories of like elementary school? Did you have a good one? Do you remember? Do you still have friends? Because I figure people in New York, you guys have friends that are from like elementary school and from like middle school and all of us. We're like from like different places. So to meet somebody from elementary school and still be friends with them as an adult, we're like, what planet are you guys from? But like in New York, it's such a small area that it could happen. So what's like, could, what's your first friend you ever to... had in elementary school? Do you remember that? Do you remember what your teacher yeah, was like? Yeah, Michal, and we're still friends together. Michal. We just hung out yesterday. That's the thing is also when you're in a religious community, and it's a very closed-off, insular community, you tend to keep your friends because they're not just an elementary class with you. Their parents go to synagogue with you, mm. and their family is at the, the yearly Hanukkah party with you. And when someone in the community dies, everybody knows about it, and everybody goes to the funeral, even if they weren't in the same school as you. Um, so my best friend from childhood, her name is Michal. Michelle is her English name that she goes by. Um, it, we also have a personal connection because her parents and my parents lived in the same building together, and they were they're good family friends. So we were both put in the same school. I went to Prospect Park Elementary School, um, and we both we're in the same schools together, race together. We had Shabbat meals together, Hanukkah parties together, Purim parties together. Um, and even though she went to Prospect Park High School and I switched to a different high school, uh, we still maintained our friendship. We're still friends today and we'll very likely be friends until the day we die. <laughs> and that's how it is with many, many yeshivas is you form these bonds and it just stays with you. It's very different from public school. Um, and that also you have your one class and that is the one class that you stay with your entire like first oh it's like boy meets world (laughs) in a way (laughs) have you ever seen that show before i've not that's why i'm laughing oh (laughs) it's it's the same group of kids that like they're the same group of kids because when people ask i'm like why is this teacher teaching them for their, their whole life but it's like the same group of kids in the same class what was your first teacher's name? Do you remember your first teacher? Does your teacher grow with you or you get different teachers? You get different teachers, but the students and the parents stay the same. Uh, my first grade teacher... It's okay if you don't remember the teacher's she name. She was such a sweet woman. She taught me... I remember she would give out cookies in math class because I hated math. <laughs> and they were such good cookies. The Reisman Kutcher cookies. What was her name? Oh, goodness. She was an older woman. She passed away. About a decade ago, I don't remember her name. Oy. Oh, Mrs. Dickman. Mrs. Dickman was for English, oh, really and for it. Hebrew was um, Mora Feldman. Mora is the Hebrew term yeah, teacher. for uh, for teacher. Mora, yeah. Mora. Yeah, it's used in Israel today too. Mora. I'm pretty good, you know. I, you know, they speak fluent Hebrew at my work, so I'm always just picking really? it. Really? Yeah, it's, it's dual awesome. language. What's a, a Hebrew word that you enjoy, or that you just like the sound of? Uh, Leshevit, sit down. <laughs> <laughs> Do your kids pop up a lot? You gotta tell them to sit I, down. Cause maybe because that's the first thing when I started co-teaching with my first Hebrew teacher. She just kept saying, Yeshevit, Leshevit, Leshevit. And I was like, me? And she's like, no, no, not you. Keep going. <laughs> oh, the other that's one. awesome. Uh, oh, so pino, curious to hear about your experience. Abe, okay so we get to elementary school and it's going with all girls so when do you so what is it like working being with all girls the whole time is it tough is it or no, is it more like no. i mean is it more it, like 
you know, women camaraderie and stuff like that? Pretty because, much. Because you guys I, are all like the no... same culture, same religion. So it's really like us against the world, really. In, in a way, yeah. But also there's no, um, there's no mingling, really. And again, I'm talking about the ultra-Orthodox, Orthodox and Hasidic communities. There's, there's really um, very little co-ed. So this extends itself to events. For example, um, it's not just I only went to school with all girls and had all female teachers. It's also um, I didn't have male friends because it wasn't done. It just wasn't like you go to a wedding, there's a mechitza. That's kind of like a curtain or a fence or even just a row of potted plants in the middle of the hall. And so the women and the girls are dancing and celebrating on one side and the men and the boys are dancing and celebrating on the other side. Oh, really? um, when it comes to synagogue prayers, right? The women usually have Ezrat Nashim, the women's section, and the men are in their section. Um, so even prayers are kind of separated. Um, you have a Shabbat meal, right? So families might on occasion be seated together at a Shabbat meal, but it's not like you're seated with your neighbors and their sons. So I didn't really have opportunities. And there, there were also, there were no like, oh, debate club or sports club is mixed. That wasn't a thing. We didn't really have that. We had like a play that we put on, but it was just us, the women, you know? Well, what does it um, feel like as a woman, as a woman? Like, did you ever like ask yourself why? Or you just know, like, I need to follow? I did. I think, I think every person at some point questions this. And you'll find that the second a girl or a woman is out of the high school, sector right usually the, the traditional path is elementary school high school and then a year in israel where you study abroad mm -hmm. for boys it's in yeshiva and then for girls it's called seminary where they go for a year they learn judaic studies and then they come back and then you're slated for marriage that's the ascribed life path what do you mean slated now, for marriage meaning like they pick out your husband or no meaning it's like you... expected like okay you finish learning now you could go to college and start earning a degree, but at this point, your main goal in life is to become a Jewish mother, to get married. So um, so Jewish women start dating around 18, 19, 20. That's oh, wow. when they start the dating process. And Jewish men uh, start around 21, 22, 23. And this is, again, I'm, 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 this is for the very religious, the ultra-Orthodox, Orthodox, Hasidic communities. Right. But like, let's Modern just... Orthodox people start a little later, I would say like around 20, 21, 22 for the women, and 23, 24, 25 for the men. So let's just stay on Sarah. So Sarah's life. As you're going through middle school, when you have these questions, do you talk to your mother or do you ask your dad, like, why is it like this? Why is it like this? Do you find yourself as a rebel? Because sometimes I think in religion, when you ask questions, sometimes you don't want to be disrespectful. You know, you right. want to follow the path. Did you ever have that situation where you're wondering, like, why is this like this? And which yes. parent did you go to to be all like, how do they, and how did they take your questioning? I think it's it's also a deeply personal question, not a religious one, because any child who is told this is the life path, this is the life journey, and then they have questions about it, it's natural that you don't want to disappoint your parents. You don't want to upset your parents. Um, maybe there are other factors in the family, like maybe, you know, I, for example, had a, a, a sibling with special needs. I had another sibling that was diagnosed with mental illness. I had a lot growing up, and I always was in that position of I need not I want, but I need to be that perfect child. I cannot afford to disappoint or upset my parents. I can't afford to be another source of pain for them. They already have so much going on in their lives. When did you so feel I, that way? When, did when you... it came to me specifically, I wouldn't, I wouldn't go to them. <laughs> I would just read books or do my own thing. And I, I just didn't want, that's why I, I just want to preface this is important, Jared, for your listeners to understand is, um, 
it's not a religious thing. It's there are kids who are raised religious that will have questions and they will have doubts. Whether or not they go to their parents is a very personal case by case thing. It's if you were raised in a home environment where you have a great relationship with your parents and you feel free enough to ask them whatever you want, then you likely will. Right. And depending on the parents, they likely will or will not answer. So when I'm talking about me specifically, this is not a reflection on Jews or the Orthodox community. This is just me, myself, so my own personal situation. Life. Is that my parents went through a lot in life. I had a lot, uh, a lot of siblings that faced a lot of challenges, and I also am that very compassionate, empathetic kind of person who I felt like I don't want to be a source of pain for my parents, mm. but I did have a lot of questions and I did have a lot of doubts. So my personal method of handling it was going to the library, finding books, trying to find um, people that are not from the community that might be able to write answers, finding people from the community. Like I had a rabbi that I would talk to. I had um, a teacher that I connected with. So I would always turn to them. I wouldn't turn to my parents per se. Um, and sometimes, I'll be honest with you, <laughs> I hope this doesn't bite me in the rear, um, sometimes you just don't, you don't want to talk to people, you just want to do your own thing. It's like, okay, why am I not allowed to have male friends? Mm-hmm. Um, I have a college classmate who's male, and he's interesting, and I would love to grab a cup of coffee with him and just talk to him about what life is like outside of the community. I'm not going to talk to my parents about that. I'm not going to talk to a rabbi about that. I'm just going to privately on my own make up a time to meet for coffee with him and schmooze and then keep that conversation to myself. I'm not going to share that with anyone because I, I fear it might be frowned upon or it might mm. not be appreciated or, you know, okay. So Does that kind of answer your no, question? That, 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 that makes perfect sense. It makes, now it makes me, I want to bring two, two, two questions. Do you hear that noise? Something like that. Oh, sorry. Oh, that was a, I wrote a question down. That was my question. Dang, I only asked a question. Okay, two questions, right? The first question is, growing up, because we know this is specific to you. We're not saying that these are all the religious things. This is just your life. So that's why I'm, we brought you up, because you have a very unique perspective. And that's why I think that most of the time, when you said you f- fell in love with books and you started educating yourself, I think that's why, to today, you always find a unique way to look at any situation, because... It's like, you're not like a jack of all trades, but sometimes it's like anything that you might not think she knows, she probably has an idea or an opinion about it. And I find that interesting. Yeah. Right, but I'm like an encyclopedia a little bit. It's just like, if you throw a topic out, it's like, no, Sarah, say something. Sarah can join yourself. And I Try think that's, me. yeah, that's a, but that's a rare skill to, to know how to f- join yourself in a conversation and not be clueless. Does that make sense? It does, but you'd be surprised at how many conversations I had to be clueless in before I gained that skill. And it, it's sometimes still ongoing. Aretha Franklin passed away. I'm yeah, sitting queen, at the teacher's table in public school, and they're, like, talking about Aretha Franklin. And I pop in, and I'm like, who is she? Oh, Jesus Christ. <laughs> and I know, I know. Whoa, that was just, whoa, never mind. And everybody at the teacher's table <laughs> is like, Sarah. How are you a public school teacher living in New York City and you don't know who Aretha And I'm like, you know what? Instead of yelling at me, here's my phone. Let's go to Spotify. What's your favorite song of hers? Who is she? Why did you like this woman? Why did you respect her? And now I know so much about Aretha Franklin, but it's because I'm not. I used to be very embarrassed to ask. I used to feel stupid. I mean, I was raised where I had no internet. I didn't have a TV. I didn't have movies. This is, this is commonplace in more religious communities, even in Muslim and Catholic communities a lot of times, you know. Um, 
so I, I don't, I didn't know a lot growing up. And then I found myself in situations where it's like, people are discussing this movie, this show, this artist, this yeah. movement, this concept, and I'm just clueless. And at first my method was shut up, say nothing and pretend that you know everything. Mm. And then when they ask you a question, give a very like, I became a master at the, at the politically select response. Like people would be like, so have you ever heard of cardiovascular? I don't know, like some random. And I'd be like, yes, well, I find it fascinating, but I'm more interested by, and then <laughs> a different you know, topic. Hijack the conversation. But and that, then at some point I was like, "What? What are you doing? Why are you just just ask? Just say I don't know. Tell me what you know." But that's and then but that's I also a skill. Don't believe in, that's a that's skill that I you have. I don't believe in just learning from other people. I want to learn for myself, so I would try to pursue and learn as much as I can. I think that's what I found out that you're very like open, and I feel like that's the best person to learn is someone who's open. You're open for yeah. not just critique, but you're open to learn new things. Like I grew up in, I grew, I'm from Florida in North Carolina, but I grew up in the Netherlands in Japan. So there's a lot of things I didn't know. I just figured out just asking people and asking different things, which made me think of another thing that you brought up. Being the oldest and having siblings with um, special needs, did you feel like, did you feel like when you said you had to be perfect, did you feel like you were sheltering? You didn't want your brothers and sisters to be exposed to anything like that? Or you just felt like, when did you feel the needs like, I need to be perfect? Because that's a that's a t- tough thing to take on, trying to be perfect, you know? Like, how old were you when you realized, like, yo, I need to be perfect because I don't want my parents to worry about this? That's a tough burden to take on as a child or adolescent, knowing, like, I don't want to be a burden to my parents. And they probably don't even I know you felt that way. They don't. <laughs> I hope they don't hear this. <laughs> oh, gosh. Uh, I honestly, it's it's a really powerful question. I think I've never I've never thought about it before, but in thinking about it now, and I appreciate that you asked it. Um, my brother was born with a stroke at birth. Uh, my mother was giving birth, and she was telling the doctor, you know, I, I feel like I'm in labor. The baby's coming out, um, and the doctor pretty much ignored her and said, No, you don't know what you're talking about. It's not coming out yet weight um and so when he was born he came out and the umbilical cord wrapped around his neck Mm. so he was choked he was deprived of oxygen for a few minutes which resulted in a stroke um and my parents were immigrants you know they were not american they were immigrants they were struggling with the language they had no family here because they both of their families everybody was in israel they were here completely on their own um they were also spartic which mid-eastern jews darker skinned jews again didn't really have a lot of, uh, there was not a very big community back then. It was mostly Ashkenaz Jews. Um, and so they were on their own and they were struggling a lot. And I just remember, um, that brother is about five years younger than me. I just remember my parents crying, coming home and crying. And I remember Shlomo, his name is Shlomo. He was, he was really young. And I just remember thinking like, I need, I need to, I, I brought food to my mom and I was like, Ima, you need to eat. Ima is his mother. mother he was yeah. like, Ima, you need to eat something. Um, you know, I, I was I was young. I don't remember how old I was, maybe eight or ten. And I just remember thinking, I need I need to take care. I need to do. I need to, I need to make them better. I need to make this pain go away. I need I need to just fix. And that I I don't know why, but I think it's stuck with me for the longest time. Like even now, I find myself in situations where it's like, oh, there's pain. I need to fix. Oh, there's sadness. I need to fix. Oh. I have my own pain. No, no, no. I can't. I can't let that happen because I, I need. <laughs> I need to. Well, who's? Wow, it's so weird to vocalize thoughts that you've not thought of before. 
Yeah, well, sometimes you can see that in a person. Sometimes you, I think I was saying, I was like, you got to check on your strong friends. They're always the strongest person. You wonder, like, who's spotting them, you know? Like, if you're lifting weights, there's yeah. always, you know, when you're doing this, the squad rack, you're supposed to have a spotter there. You know, who spots you? Who's the person in your life that spots you when you feel down or when Sarah's not the strongest? Who's that person? Have you found that person yet in your life to, like, spot you or hold you up when you feel down? Because that's a lot to carry on your back since a young child. Or have you found that yet? I don't think I have. I, I'm hoping that, God willing, one day I find my soulmate and maybe they can be there for me. Maybe, you know, I can be there for them. I don't, I don't, I don't know. I do find that a lot of times the people who are always trying to put out pain, a lot of times they just ignore their own because they can't afford to kind of be an extra source of that. Nothing I'm saying is making sense right now. But no, it's it is like, making sense. Have you ever saw the statue? If my parents are trying, you know, to go to the hospital with my brother, who's hospitalized a few times, I, my process, my thought process, which may sound a little screwed up as I'm verbalizing it, was who am I to tell my parents that I hate going to the hospital and that it's miserable when they themselves are miserable and are forced to go there. No, I'm going to go. I'm going to bring ice cream. I'm going to crack jokes. I'm going to make my mom smile. And then I'm going to, you know, try to bring more ice cream for the other moms that are there. And I'm going to try to make everybody there smile. And then, like, at night, when it's 4 o'clock at night and everybody's happy and sleeping and comfortable, I'll just, like, turn around and cry. <laughs> that sounds so sad. No, Why not. am I saying this on no. a public no, I mean that's not that's that's honest. You gotta think about it like this. This is this isn't just for you. It's for people who probably are in your situation right now. There's a billion people yeah. in the world that are probably growing up just like you and probably feeling this pain, not know knowing what to do, and probably holding the world on their back. You know, a lot of people that make jokes. You know, I'm a stand up comic. A lot of them are like broken people. Not broke. Not saying you're broken, but a lot of people are people that hold the world on their back. Like you remind me yeah. of that statue, you know, that guy's holding the world on his back like that. Yeah, Atlas. Yeah, the Atlas. Guy. Yeah, Atlas. Because sometimes, like when you notice that someone's like always are listening, always are doing that, and he's like, you know, it's like I wonder what her story is. Like, why is this world on her back? But now it makes a whole lot more sense. Like you're a young, a young child, and what's it like? What was your youngest memory of like going to the hospital, like seeing your your sibling? The earliest hospitalization was at LIJ. Um, his story is very complicated because he was already developmentally delayed with the stroke, but then he was badly abused by a rabbi in a, uh, his high school. He was in a high school program for special needs children, and he was badly abused. Like and physical or like mental abuse? We're all. not certain. We suspect it was a combination of sexual, physical, and mental. But he just kind of came home and he broke. He just, he stopped talking for a week. There was pure silence. And then the next day it was just nonstop, constantly gibberish, phrases, threats that he was repeating that we know people had said to him. Um, and we've been to many doctors, but the ultimate diagnosis was psychosis, mm. which is when the brain is severely traumatized and it keeps reverting to the trauma. Um, so the earliest memory of this particular difficulty was when Passover, um, the biggest ho one of the biggest holidays in the Jewish calendar is Passover. Seven days, you're with family, you do a thorough cleaning of the house, you thoroughly prepare, 
you're cooking like a few days in advance. This, this is like a hardcore. Imagine like Thanksgiving, but seven days in a row Space and a twice a day. <laughs> um, so Erev Pesach, which is, you know, before the holiday, um, my brother, he's just, he's up and he's screaming and he's having an episode and we don't know how to control it. And it gets really bad. And we have to call Hatsala, which is the, the volunteer Jewish ambulance company. Okay. So they arrive. Now, my mom is, like, in the kitchen prepping for Passover. Um, my dad was also, like, running around doing last-minute errands. The kids are all home. There's no school. It's a hot mess. Okay. So both of my parents get into the ambulance with Shlomo, and they drive off. They don't have their phones. They don't have – I because it was a scramble. It was, like – the ambulance arrives, you got to go. There's no go bag. There's no, it was literally, where's our insurance card? Where is ID and credit card? Go. So they leave. Now, this is like nine o'clock in the morning. Um, Passover is like that, that night that, no, it was the next day. Um, this was like six, seven years ago. So I'm, I'm waiting two hours past three hours past four hours. I don't hear from them. So I, I Google all the local hospitals, Maimonides, um, Mount Sinai, and I start calling them and asking, do you have a Shlomo? Do you have a Shlomo? No response. Fine. So then I start calling psych. I call um, a couple of psych places, and they're like, we have no record on file. And at this point, I'm bugging out. There's like six hours left to the holiday, and I, I don't know where my parents are. I don't know where my brother is. I don't know what's going on. And the younger kids keep looking at me like, okay, what, what are we doing for the holiday? Like, what's what's happening? What, they're also freaking out. So I pretend that everything is fine. I'm not panicking. I'm like, guys, don't worry. Abba Neymar with Shlomo, he's fine. Everything's going to be great. They might not come back tonight because they have to stay with him. But it's fine. We're going to do our own Pesach Seder. We're going to do our own, you know, um, keep this one busy, give this one a video, give this one food. And then I finally, I, I decided, you know, I'm just going to reach out to someone in Hatzalah. So I call the Hatzalah company. I'm like, where did they drop him off? They're like, oh, they dropped him off at this hospital. Fine. So I call that hospital. And they're like, I'm sorry, ma'am, we can't give out private information. I'm like, I'm, I'm their daughter. I want to know where my parents are. They're like, we we can't give out private information. Fine. So I hang up. I call back 10 minutes later, and I'm like, um, my mom called me asking for the insurance information. She needs it for my brother. Um, is she there? <laughs> and it was a different nurse. So she's like, oh, yeah, one second. <laughs> so she, she then calls me back, and she's like, no, I'm so sorry. Um, your mom went to a different hospital. They transferred him to... Um, a facility in Long Island where he's going to be staying. Like he's, he's being hospitalized at Long Island Jewish. And I'm like, great. I have no way of reaching like them. So I, I thank the nurse. I call Long Island Jewish. And again, I pull the same insurance scam to get them to actually like give me my mom on the phone. I'm like, yeah, I have, I have the insurance card number in front of me. And the woman was like, give me the number. I, I can't give you, you know, I can't give away. Con I was like, no, 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 I don't feel comfortable giving insurance information. I'm sorry. I need to give this directly to my mother. So she finally puts my mom on the line and my mom is like, Oh, Sarah, everything's good. Thank God. You know, we found Shlomo a place, but he's going to be hospitalized here on Passover. So Abba and I are deciding who's going to stay with him for the whole holiday. And I'm like, I can hear her pain. I can hear that she's really upset about this because no one wants to be alone in a hospital for seven days of Passover. Like that it's, it's really rough. Okay. Um, so I, started calling Chabad and Chabad is a sect of Hasidic, of yes. Hasidic Jews, Hasidic Jews. They're wonderful people. Um, they're very loving. They, their whole mission in life is to help people grow closer to God and to help people. So what they do is they have rabbis stationed throughout literally every country in the world. 
where any Jew who's traveling can just reach out and say, hey, I need a place for kosher food or I need a place for Shabbat. And they do the same thing with hospitals. So this hospital had a Chabad rabbi, as do most hospitals. And the rabbi's job is usually to visit everyone that's sick, but to help out Jewish patients by giving them, you know, free kosher food and talking to their family members. So I call this rabbi and I'm like, listen, you don't know me. There's like five hours left till Passover. Um, my brother was just hospitalized there. My mom is going to have to stay in the hospital alone with him. And it's a miserable thing. And I'm trying to see if there are any hotels or any places walking distance to the hospital that my family can go to. And we can try to make a family Passover because you can't drive on the holiday. You can't have technology, you know? And this man, this God bless this man. He says to me, if I get to meet your parents face to face and I see that they check out and they're Jewish and they're decent people, they can use my house. His house was a block away from the hospital. He was going to his in-laws with his whole family. And just to give your listeners some understanding of this, this is a tremendous sacrifice because when a Jewish person cleans their house for Passover, they are literally removing any bread, any crumbs. They're they're dusting, they're wiping, they're they're cleaning the entire thing. Like shelves are covered in silver foil. The refrigerator has new lining in it. Um, and for this man to allow a family of eight, well, seven, because my brother was in the hospital, that he had never met, to live in his home and put their food in his oven and like use his prayer books and sit at his table and sleep in his kids' beds and everything was such a tremendous act of kindness, but also on Passover after his house was cleaned for Passover. Like it's even more mind blowing. So I immediately call my parents and they meet the rabbi and I find a way. My, my dad comes, picks us up. We quickly get food in trays. We put it in the oven and we spend Passover, the whole family there. We all get to visit my brother. How old were you when this happened? I was maybe 20. 1920. Um, but yeah, we made it happen in like five hours. So it's one of my earliest memories. Uh, like that grace, was the first hospital. Yeah, that's like the grace, the grace of God. You know what I mean? Like favor. We call it yeah. favor. Like when you have favor with somebody. So yeah. That's... It was completely not. In Hebrew, the term is hashkacha pratit. It means God's divinity. Like God is Divine. washing out for you and he's just being there. He's present and he's finding ways to make things happen. Shlomo's how old? How old is he? Now he's 23, just turned 23. 23. So before 20, before 20, that was an amazing story. Before 20, he never was never hospitalized. He just always... He had a lot. He, he went through intense physical therapy, speech therapy, occupational therapy, his entire childhood. I mean, and those, that was my childhood too because I remember when I was in like eighth grade, Did you I ever, was maybe 13. Go ahead. Did you ever feel like attention? Did you ever feel like the attention... That he took the attention? Did you ever feel like that? Not like he took it, but did you ever feel like the attention was on your brother? I mean, I, I was I was always in that, like, caretaker right. role. I, like, my, my brother and my sister. My sister also was injured when she was younger. So both of them had to go to physical therapy twice a week. Um, now, my parents were with the younger kids. So I would be the one. My mom would say, okay, the car service is outside, so you're going to go. And I was, like, maybe 14, 15. It was like, you're going to go in the car with Shlomo and Hadassah every Monday, Wednesday from six o'clock. We'd leave, we'd get to the place by like six 30. I would sit in the waiting room while they would each have their therapy sessions. Wow. And then I would get in the car, take them and go back home. So like from, you're talking like six to eight 30, sometimes five 30 to nine twice a week for about five, six years. Um, I would take them to their physical therapy place. And a lot of times it was like, you don't focus on, Oh, the attention's not on me. Or maybe I did. Maybe I, I definitely was like, <laughs> how come nobody cares about me? But 
I don't know. I I just like to think that you're thinking. I thank God I don't have to be in physical therapy. Like no, 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 not like not like that. But it's but it's like I'm I'm noticing that you were like you like raised ki- like kids. You know what I mean? You kind of were like a mom already. So it's just like you raised kind of like four. Yeah. Even though your parents are there, you kind of played a significant role of like helping develop your your brothers and sisters. Like your sister, what was her ailment? Like when her physical she had fallen well she had a really bad case of junior arthritis but she had also fallen down the stairs and injured her knee really badly Mm. when she was younger much younger um it's my family had a constant (laughs) we've constantly things yeah it's a tough it's a tough life you know what i mean i think the people that are very strong like mentally strong it it comes from somewhere you know what i mean it just doesn't come out of nowhere you know, well, sometimes there. we don't have a choice. We, we can't choose. Like, you do have a choice. Are... Some people fight or flight. Some people like go into that rebel. Like, why isn't it about me? Instead of like rebelling, you kind of like say, well, let me help my family. At a young age, you know, imagine a teenager taking care of four kids. But like, I can't imagine the alternative. It just doesn't. I don't know. I Sometimes I curse the day that I have this responsibility bone because it it doesn't go away. You can't ignore it. It's just there. It's like something needs to be done. Okay, I'll do it. There's no even thought process of why do I want to do it. It's just like, okay, I have to do it. <laughs> well, what was it like? What was it like getting everybody ready to go to, it's not yeshiva, to shul? Shul? Synagogue, yeah. Synagogue, yeah. What was that like? How? What's, so what time does synagogue start? So this is where I'm really happy that I'm female. <laughs> <laughs> oh, because you guys um, go separately. Prayers, prayers are technically the male's mitzvah, the man's like commandment. Um, in Judaism, it's interesting because men and women have such gender-specific commandments and mitzvot, mitzvah. I'm trying to think of what would be the best translation for the word mitzvah um, to explain to your listeners. Uh, a party, a mitzvah right? is like a good celebration. Deed. A celebration? That's interesting. Um, it's like a, a commandment, a good deed done from religious duty, if you would. So, for example, giving charity is a mitzvah. It's a commandment for both men and women. We're okay. both supposed to give charity. But then lighting candles Friday night to welcome the Sabbath is a woman's mitzvah. It's the woman's commandment. The man doesn't do that. But then for the man, wearing tzitzis, wearing those stringed garments, if you've ever seen Jews that yes. have like a white with the strings coming out of it, it's, it's Tahitis. and wearing a skull cap. Tahitis. Yeah, the kippah. Kippah, yes. It's like the black skull cap that they wear on their heads. That's the male's commandment. Women don't have to do that. But then when, because it's a reminder of someone being above you. People ask, like, what's the kippah for? It's like, oh, Muslim Muslim men will sometimes wear a skull cap too. Um, it's a reminder that there is a God above you and he he sees you. He, you're, you know, you. it's a reminder to kind of act in an embodiment of God. Like, I, I have a piece of God in me. I have to act like a godly person i can't do that or harm to others um but the woman's deed is to cover her hair when she's married right men don't have to cover their hair um women do um also modesty like women have to cover their bodies collarbone knees um elbows men don't have that commandment but on the other hand men do have to pray three times a day in judaism in islam it's five times a day in judaism it's three times a day women are not beholden to that same commandment like, we, we are told that we should pray, but it's known as a mitzvah zman grama, which means that it's a, time, a time-based a time commandment. And because women are expected to have children, be mothers, um, it's not easy for them to have a time-based commandment. Because, you know, if you're supposed to have shachrit, the morning prayer, before noon, and then you're supposed to have mincha, the afternoon prayer, before sundown, 
and Ma'ariv, which is the evening prayer, you know, before sunrise or whatnot, if you have children and you have a schedule that you adhere to, it's very hard to have a time-based commandment. So women are exempt from prayers. It's not to say that they don't pray. Many women do pray. And, you know, it is a commandment of ours to pray. But it's not like... But do you still have to um, physically go? No, so that's the thing is we don't... What age, have to go what to age do you physically don't have to go to synagogues? I see kids in synagogues. Yeah, so a lot of parents will take their kids to kind of show them and teach them from a young age the love of connecting to prayer and God. Um, men have the commandment of when they pray, they have to pray in a minyan, which means a quorum of, a quorum of ten men. So that's basically what, what commands them to go to synagogue. It's like, I have to pray with ten men. I don't have ten men in my living room. I got to go to synagogue to do this. Women have the obligation to pray, but they're not obligated to pray in a minyan. So I can pray in my kitchen, in my basement, in my backyard, in my living room, whenever I want. It's a lot easier for me. So your goal um, was... My brothers had to go to synagogue. So this is, again, in the Hasidish, ultra-Orthodox, Orthodox world. It's usually by bar mitzvah, 13. That's when um, the obligation to pray with the minyan begins. And so most men and boys, like 13 and up, they'll have to pray in synagogue. So that's where they'll go to pray. Um, so what's it like? So are you like the, the one to get everybody ready? It's time to go to synagogue? No, that's my... So my dad. My dad will wake up my brothers and be like, Shalom. All right, time to go. Let's go. <laughs> so he'll take them to synagogue. I'm like, I'm um, staying there. Yeah, happy sleeping. and comfortable. <laughs> Is it three girls and three boys? Yeah. So, so what about the baby? What's the baby's name? Yehuda. Well, we Yehuda. call him JJ because his name is Yehuda Yosef. Judah Joseph. Joseph. So. Yeah. I'm very good with these these names. So he's a, he's in high school right now. 14. Yes. Then. then you sh- then, which will go from, let's go youngest to oldest. Six, number six is JJ. Number five is? So then we have Adi. Adi, Adi is oh, Hebrew that. for a precious name. gem. A gem, yes. I have a lot of Adi. I know, most of, I've noticed in Israel, a lot of them has the same name. Mitan. Yeah. There's a lot Gideon. of, because Israel has a lot of, um, a lot of Talmudic and biblical names that Alone. have very special meaning. And then there's a lot of the, um, traditional Jewish history names, like the matriarchs, like Abraham, Isaac, like Avram, Yitzchak, Yaakov, Sarf, Garachaleah. Yaakov. My name, yeah. So Adi was like, Adi Hodeya. Hodeya means um, grace to God, grateful to God. My parents are really grateful for her. Yeah. So she's, and then above her is four. Shlomo. Shlomo Chaim. Shlomo's four. Wait, two of your siblings are named Shlomo? No, Shlomo is the one who special needs. And he's 23. Yeah. Okay. So it's Yehuda, Yehuda Yosef is the youngest. JJ. Adi Hodea is the girl who's above him. Adi. Shlomo Chaim. Chaim means life. Shlomo Chaim, Solomon, basically life. That's his name. Is the one who's special needs. Um, he's above her. And then Hadassah Mazal. Mazal means luck, fortune. And Hadassah is the name of Esther, the yes. princess who saved, in the story of Esther, the the Megillah, her. the story of Purim. My sister was born around Purim time, so she's Hadassah Mazal. Uh, she's 24, 25. And then Aaron is Aaron. above her. Yeah, Abraham's, He's 26. Aaron was Abraham's right-hand man. No, he's Moses' right-hand man. He, no, Aharon. Um, Aharon was the leading Kohen, the leading... Um, the Kohen was the holiest priest in the Beis HaMikdash, the holy temple of the Jews. So Aharon was the brother 
Actually, you're right. Yeah, Aaron was Moshe's brother. Yeah, Holy cow. Yeah, just, call, you <laughs> know, I use hip-hop terms. That's his right-hand man. Yeah, you're right. Okay, wow. Like, this is funny. Okay, I stand corrected. Aaron was Moshe's brother, yeah. Yeah. Mos, Moshe Rabbeinu was Moses, the leader of the Jews, Moshe. and his brother was Aaron HaKohen, the holy priest of the Basin Dush. You are absolutely right, Jared. It's awesome how much Jewish knowledge you have. Well, you know, we're uh, the Torah and the Bible is pretty much the same until the New Testament. That's why I say we're all good until the New Testament comes in there. My name's <laughs> my name's in the Torah as well, Yaed. Really? What's yeah. the, so? How does Jared? What's the Hebrew? Jared Yaed Yaed means um, chosen one, descending one. Yaed is Methuselah. Methuselah is Noah's is Noah's dad. Yes. Wow. And yeah. Jared is Methuselah's Methuselah's dad. That's so interesting. So the Hebrew for Methuselah, I guess it's Mesushelah. Mesushelah. But I know it's Jared because when I was there, they're like, Jared. Like, Jared's like, yeah, Jared. And then they're like, oh, yeah, you're right. That's so interesting. I always wondered about the origins of your name. Yeah, That's pretty cool. My mom got my name from, uh, she met this white dude in college, and he was very nice to her, and that's where she got her name from. <laughs> the white dude named Jared. <laughs> What did your mom study? So it was. Okay, here it is. He was the son of Mahale, Mahalil, Mahalil, Mahalil. Oh, father of Enoch, excuse me. Father of Enoch. Yeah, Ed, I'm the father of Enoch. But then we go towards Adam, then Noah. So yeah, I'm after Adam, then Noah. Because Noah's dad is Methuselah, right? Yeah, Mrs. Yeah, that's a yeah, Methuselah. And then Methuselah's dad is Enoch. And then here comes Jared. Wow. Yeah, that's how it is. Methuselah, then Jared. Noah. So Jared is the forefather of Noah and his three sons. That's how I fit into this thing. But me and all my brothers, we all have biblical names. My sister's are, name is Keturah. My sister's name is Keturah. Keturah is Abraham's second wife. Uh, right. My other sister's name is Candace. Interesting. And Candace and my brother. How does brother. Candace fit into the Bible? Candace is... Oh, I forgot. Candace, biblical. I remember her name too. It means, I know it's Candace. It means she was the queen of the Ethiopians. She's in like uh, Acts. Interesting. And she was mentioned in the Bible here. It's the Candace of Monroe, the Cushite. Queen of. Men? Yeah, the Cushites. The Cushites were. Like that's the term Cushi, actually. Cushi. Was yeah, used they were like really mad inside like Israel when they kept saying this guy kept telling me about a Cushi. And he goes, if someone calls you Cushi, that's like saying the, the N word. And I was like, yeah. So, no. So, this is actually fascinating, and I'm so happy that it came up. Um, the word Cushite is a biblical term that was in the Torah, in the um, Bible, and it was used to simply mean a member of this tribe, this yeah. tribe that they were called the Kushites. And like dark people. Um, because it, and it was not used in any way um, as slang or derogatory. It was literally just a factual description of a tribe of Israel that were called the Kushites because Kushi meant darker and they had darker skin. And interestingly enough, Moshe Rabbeinu, Moses, the leader, one of the greatest prophets in Jewish history, the leader of the Jews, was married to a Kushite. He was married to Zipporah, and Zipporah was described in, in the Torah. She was described as a beautiful woman and a Kushite, one of the most beautiful women of the generation who was a Kushite, and she was married to the holiest man who had spoken to God himself. And so that term has a lot of, like, holiness and praise attached to it. Now, 
come modern day Israel. Yes. And the modern day Hebrew dictionary, which is just an amalgamation of random, like colloquial terms and street slang and Arabic and Hebrew. And the term Kushite from the Bible was shortened into Kushi. And Kushi became, and this is literally over the past like 30 years, the word Kushi became a very derogatory slang term to mean someone of darker skin color, someone who's black. And it's a horrible word um, today when it's used in this context because it was twisted completely out of it. And so you will find there's a lot of racism. I'm going to be very honest with you. There's a lot of racism that exists in Israel. It's unfortunate. It's against um, African Jews. It's against converts that are black. It's against Ethiopians. Um, and the term kushi has been used many times in a very derogatory way, almost, I would say, almost in the equivalence of the N-word by Israelis today um, against people of darker skin in Israel. And this dude told me in Israel that if someone calls you a kushi, you could sue them and get some money. Absolutely. You could and, and you he, should. And he was um, trying to, he was a stand-up comedian. I forgot his name. But I was when I stayed in Israel, I stayed like a couple months later, and I was doing stand-up all these Israeli comics. And he kept, this black dude is telling me about, like, he's Ethiopian. He goes, Cushy, I can sue someone get paid. He goes, just like America, right? And I was like, I'm sorry to regret you, but uh, no, you don't get paid for the N-word. Sorry, man. And he was no. just like, he just, like, busted <laughs> out laughing. And he was like, what? I was like, yeah, my dad, I said, like, my brother just called me one, and he didn't get me paid at all. And we just, <laughs> he was like, really? I was like, yeah, really, man, we're not. I was like, we're trying to, we're, like, relating to each other. Because he was telling me, like, he was telling me, like, what's it like being dark in Israel and stuff like that. And he was telling me, like. You yeah, know, it's this, unfortunate. This woman that I work with, she told me the first time she saw someone who looked like her was TLC. I was like, what? TLC? She's the first time she saw any black people on TV is when she was watching TLC. Oh my gosh. Chili Left Eye and T-Boss. She talked about waterfalls and not dating any scrubs. Were those? <laughs> you know what I mean? Speaking of scrubs, just kidding. Uh, yeah. Oh, my brother, yeah, it's, he's it's not a scrub, but my brother's name's Emmanuel. So those are all our biblical Emmanuel. names. God is with That's us. A there's a city in Israel, Emmanuel. Emmanuel, yeah. I, ironically, this city was like a major, major hotspot for racism news because there was a yeshiva, a very Ashkenaz yeshiva, which was led by white European Jews, mostly from like Hungary, Poland, Russia, places like that. Um, and it was the only decent school in the city of Emmanuel. And there were a lot of Sephardic Mizrahi Jews. Mizrahi Jews is the term for Middle Eastern Jews who come from more like, um, not Arabic per se, but more Mideastern countries, and they do have darker skin, and they do have different, you know, spicier food, more colorful clothing and customs, and a lot of these Mizrahi Jews tried to send their kids to the school, and the school was forced to accept them, but the school set up like a fence in the middle of their yard, and they said, you know, Mizrahi kids can only play on one side, and all the other students have really? to stay away from them and play on this side. This happened like maybe three, four years ago. It's pretty recent. And it created such a controversy in the city of Emmanuel because, um, A, racist, B, disgusting, teaching young children how to <laughs> sow discord at such a young age. Why yeah. would you do that? Um, and so the school kind of responded and said, well, really, it's because the Mizrahi Jews are a little bit more modern and they may be exposed to things like music and and, and TV and internet, and we don't want to, like, expose our our innocent, like, Ashkenaz school children to it. But honestly, it was a load of BS. Um and the mayor of Emmanuel spoke out against it, and a lot of the, the Sephardic Jews living throughout Israel spoke out against it, and eventually Emmanuel was forced to take down, in this school they were forced to take down the fence, and there, there was there was a major, like this this caused a lot of divisiveness and sadness and anger um, 
within the Jewish community in Israel. But it all happens in Emmanuel. Do you, do you think, you know, I'm not Israeli, you know, at all, but do you think Israel is the, would you say there is a colorism issue there? Oh, 100%. But would you say it's 100%. because everyone's from all these different places? Because it's kind of like America a little bit, because no one's really, the people who are from Israel are not there. So it's like everyone kind of like dispersed and then came back. Does that make yeah. sense? It does, but it's also systemic in a way because of the history. If you think about it, Israel is comprised of immigration, but it's not that everyone arrived at the same time. There were waves of immigration. And I feel like very much the level of power that a person has is based on their level of immigration. So the earlier waves of immigration came post-Holocaust, and it was mostly um, very European, Ashkenaz, white Jews who settled and established themselves in the beginning. These were people like Herzl, people like um, Weissman, like people who, you know, they came in from Poland, from Hungary, from Russia, places like this. They established themselves. They were the founding fathers of the country. Um, and so they already had a foot in the door. They already had a starting edge. The second and third waves started becoming from Sephardic Jews from Mideastern Arabic yeah, countries like Morocco, Yemen, Tunisia, Libya. And then at some point you had another wave of Jews. This was the uh, Russian Jews during the Soviet Union when a lot of the um, refuseniks were trying to come in at the time of Natan Sharansky, when he was advocating for all these Russian Jews that were living in the Soviet Union behind the Iron Curtain. They were trying to escape. Many of them came to Israel. So there was another massive wave of Russian immigrants. And then fast forward a couple of years, there was another massive wave of Ethiopian immigrants when you had Operation Moses. And um, Israeli military smuggled hundreds and hundreds of Ethiopian Jews on planes to Israel, where they were brought in to kind of counter the population growth in the um, Palestinian community. So you have all these waves of immigrants. And as these immigrants arrive, right, there were people that arrived before them that had time to establish themselves, to learn the language, to establish a career and a family. So, what so by the time you arrive... Would a uh -huh. Middle Eastern Jewish person think he's better than an Ethiopian person? That's an interesting question. And honestly, I wouldn't be surprised if some did. Like, there are some, there there, there are definitely Ashkenaz Jews that consider themselves superior to Sephardic Jews, anti-Ethiopians. And then there are definitely Sephardic Jews that consider themselves possibly superior to Ethiopians. And then there are Ethiopian Jews who consider themselves superior you know, to, let's say, the Russian Jews. It's like everybody really? thinks that they're better in some way, and it's just ridiculous because we're all, we're all escaping same. something. We're all seeking peace from something. We all had to learn the language. We all had to adapt. So who do we think we're better than? For real. Like what? My, it, my friend's mom, so I don't know if you saw this, but she told her friend's mom she has a tattoo of a... Uh, yeah. Is she Ethiopian? Yeah, she's Ethiopian. They had to put a... Yeah. Is it a cross on their neck? So they have tribal that, tattoos. Yeah, to prove that she's not Jewish, because she said that they're hunting, they're like trying to kill Jewish people in Ethiopia. So she walked from Ethiopia to Sudan, and then they walked into Israel. My goodness. Yeah, yeah. There's there's a lot of that, and it's really sad and unfortunate. But right now, there's zero denying that racism is so built into Israel to the extent that right now, the nine Supreme Court justices, I mean, the entire Supreme Court in Israel right now is mostly white. Ashkenaz. Um, in the military, it's very easy for a Sephardic person to become a lieutenant, but anything above three, four stars, no. Like, would you it's say very, it was, very hard. Would you say it's because of the European going, growing up in Europe? Would you say the European ways? Would you consider it that? Because Jewish just, people were discriminated against, you know, when they lived in Europe, they were definitely discriminated against. So do you think it was like 
being in Europe and taking the European ideologies or I, I don't know it's a good question I do know this I do know that there there is um right now the prevalent people in power all of the um the bigger ministers all of the bigger supreme court justices the the police chief the military generals they're all white ashkenaz european descent people um and there are there are the rare Sephardic dark-skinned jews that manage to get into these positions but there's a lot of protectia which is the hebrew term for pull like these are people that will align themselves with the left the political left or they will kiss rear end to get to where they get to or a lot of times they'll just be very very talented individuals and their talent will be recognized but they'll also know a lot of people in power which is how they get to that position um and it's unfortunate but there have been many many times where a spartic dark-skinned person jew would achieve a position of power and then the political machine is set in motion and we're going to start investigations against them we're going to open up corruption charges against them and we will find something anything to tear this person down from their position of power because we don't like that they're from the Sephardic community and they're bringing power to the Sephardic community. Okay, and so by the way, everything that I'm saying now is like opinion. acknowledged and oh, known, oh, okay. but never verbalized. It's like you're <laughs> like talking house wrong. news. You're talking about like what's happening yeah. on the inside of... This is like what no one will verbalize, but will know is happening and will agree with. So when's the first time you went to Israel? Maybe I was six or seven. I've, I go to Israel as often as I can because my dad's side and my mom's side, they both live there. And it, I love it. It's it's my homeland. It's, I, so, I'm very patriotic. I'm grateful to be American, but I feel very connected to Israel as my homeland. Would you say that when you go back to Israel, how are you perceived? Are you perceived? Do people know you're Ashkenazi? No, you're not Ashkenazi. Will people know that you're Sephardic? No, I'm, I'm like brown skin. I, have, I, yeah, I do Sephardic, look a bit darker. Huh? I'm automatically perceived as Sephardic. And I've had people in Israel treat me differently at times i also because i can speak in an israeli it depends i can talk to an israeli and be like so they perceive me on their level as an israeli citizen but i can also speak to them as an american and they'll just view me differently as like ah like you're american you don't understand um i've i've had i've had people look at me like i'm too jewish when i'm in tel aviv on the beach or at a bar it's like sarah like in talma for example i went to a, a Saturday, it was like Thursday night, everybody went to Tel Aviv to this bar, this dance club, they're dancing around, and I'm, I went because I was I was awfully bored, and I felt very isolated and lonely, and everybody there was like, Sarah, what are you doing here? Sarah, are you allowed to be here? Sarah, you shouldn't be, like, you're religious, like, what's a religious oh. Jew doing here? It felt horrible, but then at the same time, I'll go visit my aunt in Nebrak, you know, my very religious aunt and uncle in Nebrak, which is the equivalent of our park in New York, it's like this Hasidic um, very orthodox enclave, and I'll have my aunt tell me, like, Oi, Sarah, pull, pull down your skirt. It's not covering your knees. Oh, Sarah, did you remember to pray the Mincha prayer today? You have to remember to pray it. So you're stuck in this very odd, hellish position where you're too Jewish for some people and you're not, not Jewish, Jewish enough for some people. How did you feel? Okay, let's let's compare. So that's in Israel. What about in America? Did you ever feel... How did you feel in America? Did you ever feel like you were... Do you feel like you, you belong more in America? Say huh? that again. Do you feel like Sorry, you belong you more in America? Or do you feel like you belong more in Israel? Like, how are you perceived in America? So this, what I just mentioned previously, the same thing happens in America too. I, I have friends, lots of friends here that are not Jewish from different communities, you know, and um, they'll say things to me like, "Oh, 
so you have Facebook, like, but you're Orthodox? Like, pff, Orthodox people don't have Facebook. That's ignorance, yeah. <laughs> or I, I had someone call me a liar because <laughs> I posted something online about how, you know, racism exists in, in the Jewish community, unfortunately. It exists in every community. Like, who are we kidding? But we are not treating black converts as well as we should. And it is oh, wow. it is on us. The onus is on us to, to welcome them into synagogue, to welcome them into our schools. And I had people message me and say, you're not Orthodox. I mean, why are you bashing the Orthodox community? And you have Facebook? And you have a job as a public school teacher? Oh my gosh, you are not Orthodox. You are lying about being Orthodox. And I was like, what? Are these Orthodox <laughs> people saying this to you? Or these are like people who aren't even Orthodox? So a combination, which is why it was so weird. Like I, I have had instances here where I'm in my hometown, in my native city, and there are people telling me like, why are you at a at a Christmas party? You're Orthodox? Like, Orthodox people don't go to Christmas parties. Um, and I'm like, what? My school is having a party where all of the teachers are there, the students are there. I want to show them solidarity. I don't have to believe in Jesus to attend a Christmas party and say happy holidays. Right. You know? And the fact that I do go and support you and wish you a happy holiday doesn't mean that I'm abandoning my faith. And so it's that same stupid dichotomy where people will be like, Oh, you went to a barbecue and there were boys there? You're not religious enough. But then on the other hand, I'll get, like, the community matchmaker telling me, you know, Sarah, this boy would love to go out with you, but he just feels like you're not religious enough. Like, you you know, you you have friends that are male and you have friends that are not Jewish and you, you know, you, you go to bars and you, you, you go to movie theaters, so he just doesn't want to, you know, date. And I'm like, I'm okay with that because it's like, all right, I guess he's not the one for me. But it... Do you feel like an outcast sometimes? Yeah, and you it's think about it, like I, I'll wager that there are plenty of people in my position from religious communities who have felt rejected because they were too religious or because they were not religious enough. Like I doubt that I'm the only one that's happening to. Okay, so let's 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 pack that again because you you've dropped a lot of knowledge on us. So you say you feel like an outcast, right? And at the same time, you have all this at home. At home, you're pretty much the second mom. Your second mom, you're helping out your brothers, you're helping out your sisters. So what is it like, when did you start dating? Like, when's the first time you ever went on a date? Because everyone dates secretly, but when did you date publicly? When was that like? When was the first time where you were like, I'm interested in a male, I would like to pursue him, or when did a male pursue you? Were you, like, scared? Were you like, this isn't supposed to happen? What is going on? I can only tell my older sister because she's the only one I've been to. (laughs) So it's my younger sister will do that to me. Um, That's a great question. So to unpack that, with dating in the Orthodox, ultra-Orthodox, and Hasidic communities, it's it's a little bit different, but um, generally the way it works is uh, when a girl comes back from seminary from a year in Israel, you have elementary school, high school, a year in Israel, and then you come back, you're automatically considered ready. Like, you're ready right. for dating. This is the right. time in your life, 19, 20, 21. And so usually the child, usually, again, it's different in many, many homes. It, it depends on the family. But usually a majority of the cases... The parents will approach the daughter and say, okay, so, you know, you're of the age now. Are you ready to start? Um, And when the child says yes, right? And if the child says no, then they'll wait. But usually the child will say yes. They'll call a community matchmaker. This is someone in the community that knows the family, right? Has binders, I kid you not, with resumes. It's called a shidduch resume. The term shidduch means a match. So they'll have a girl's resume, a boy's resumes, and they'll try to match them up. So what goes on the resume? You write down 
your age, date of birth, your family, your siblings, your education, the schools you went to, the job you work in, um, a paragraph about what you're looking for, um, a paragraph about, you know, your father's side, your mother's side, the synagogue you pray at, your rabbi's phone number as a reference. Pretty much like a better version of J-Day. It's basically. um, And then what happens is the matchmaker will look through the binders and say, ah, uh, so this girl is a teacher and it seems like she really likes educating and nurturing. And this boy is in school to become a rabbi. And he talks about how he wants to have a lot of guests for the Sabbath and he wants to educate. I think they'd make a good match. He's 24, she's 19 or 20. So then what they do is they send the resume to the parents of the girl. And then the parents usually kind of give their input. And then if they think, you know, this, this is something my child will go for, then the parents will send the resume to the child. So my parents will, let's say, go to the, the shop and the matchmaker who will get a resume. And then they'll show it to my parents. My parents will say, ah, oh, this guy looks decent family. We know his parents. He's a good guy. Okay, let's show it to Sarah. Then they'll show me the resume. Then I'll see the resume. Now, I'm a clueless 19-year-old who's never been on a date, has never really talked to boys. So this is the mindset of the average, like, orthodox yeshivish girl is like, ooh, okay. Um, he looks nice based on his picture. I don't really know a lot. He seems nice. Let's make it happen. Yay. (laughs) And then you put on a really nice outfit. You put on a little bit of makeup. Um, and the way it works is the boy knocks on your door, your house door. Your parents will open the door, greet him, say hello. Your father will choose with him for a couple of minutes. Oh, so where do you learn? What are you learning? Uh, who's your rabbi? Um, while you kind of stand on the side with your mom. And then your parents will smile at you and wave. The boy will walk you out to his car, open his door, car door usually, close it. Um, And then this is where it differs. The average first date is like a Coca-Cola in a hotel lounge. In a hotel (laughs) lounge? Yeah, there's not a lot of like alcohol in in this particular community. So it's not like, let's go to a bar on a date. It's usually always let's get a coffee somewhere or let's get a drink somewhere. And the somewhere is usually always the lobby of the Marriott Marquis or the, the lo- you know, the lobby of the Sheraton or some fancy, like Do people take pictures. Place. No, you don't take oh. pictures. So you, you sit down, you get a drink. That's usually non-alcoholic and you talk shop. It's, it's literally like, so where do you want to live? I want to live here. My school is here. How many kids do you want to have? Do you want to have a TV in your house or you don't want to have a TV? Oh, really? Um, it's, it's like very, very marriage-minded, almost like a business transaction a little bit. But there are typical, you know, getting to know you questions. Like, so what do you enjoy doing? And um, what are your hobbies? That kind of thing. And that usually will last an hour or two if it goes well. And then he drives you home. That's it? Then an hour? he tells an hour or two, depending. Again, depending on, on how well it goes. Um, and again, this is just usually the template this is like it, people differ sometimes um then the way it works is he goes home and he tells his parents his parents are usually waiting how to go do you like her and he says to his parents if he's interested in going out or not again and then the parents call the matchmaker same thing with the girl like the girl will go home and tell her parents yes no the parents will call the matchmaker then the matchmaker will speak to the parents if the boy said yes and the girl said yes then the matchmaker will arrange between the parties for a second date and usually that's a meal at a restaurant if one party said no, then the matchmaker will call the other party and say, I'm really sorry, it didn't work out. Let's go through our binder and find more names for you, more resumes. Oh so this is like the typical dating process. So how now, many guys you have you turned down? <laughs> Let's get to it. Um, 
I, I've been turned down plenty too. I'm considered a very opinionated. Right, I was about to say person. you're opinionated. So is that not frowned upon inside the community? Because you have very strong opinions. I do. I I mean, I've been turned down a lot. I've also done my my share of turning down. I mean, the first. How does that guy, feel emotionally? How does that feel? Because you're new to dating. Is that like a that so rejection could be I'm, completely different at an older age? The first date that I ever went on, I was 19. Um, he was handpicked by the community matchmaker. Uh, he prayed at my dad's synagogue. My dad knew his dad. My dad approved. Um, and my parent, my mother was so excited. She went out. She bought me a new skirt. She bought me a new necklace. Oh, wow. I was nervous. I had never been on a date before. I was 19. Um, I remember fussing around with, with the necklace, putting on lipstick, wiping it off, putting it on, wiping it off. Um, so he shows up. His name was Moshe. Moshe Mizrahi. Uh, white shirt, black pants, black hat, beard regular yeshiva guy um he took me to this little cafe where we had like i think it was hot chocolate and cake um and we're sitting there you got a pretty good memory you think it's like i think you remember perfectly well (laughs) i remember i remember really well because i remember what happened with him i I was a journalist before i was a teacher i was writing for a orthodox magazine called mishpacha magazine and i was the first female to write for them and i did Political. I would go to events, I would interview candidates, and I was very excited about it. I had to fight for it. My parents were not happy with this. So it was literally like, it was it was a fight. And I was very proud of my work, and I loved it. And I remember we're sitting there, and um, he asked me, like, okay, so, so what do you do? And I was like, I'm a journalist. And I was really excited about it. Like, and I'm really excited. And um, so, yeah, I'm going to get to interview Alan Dershowitz, who's a top, top lawyer. And he's going to be speaking at the United Nations. Um, and I got a ticket and I'm so excited and I'm going to be going and Moshe just like, he kind of pauses and he looks at me and he's like, what are you doing at the United Nations? Like, it's not, these people are not good. They don't like Israel. They don't like Jews. I'm like, who is this dude? Why are you so excited about talking to a man? Like what, what, you know, I'm not, I'm looking for a wife. Like I'm looking for a mother. I'm not interested in some like high fancy whatever. And like, it was like a balloon, (laughs) like all the air goes out. I just remember feeling ashamed. I honestly felt ashamed in that moment. Like, I felt like, oh, I guess like it's stupid that I'm excited about this, and wow. I really shouldn't be excited about this, and it's dumb. He's right, and I immediately shifted gears from bragging to like, oh no no, but I like this is just a hobby. I just enjoy doing it on the side, and of course, motherhood is something I really want, and. And like he said, he said one line that I remember, and this is like 10 years ago, Jared, he said, you know, I'm not the type of guy that like sits there and reads bedtime stories, you know, like reads newspapers to my kids. Like, like I want you to tell them bedtime stories. And I was like, immediately, I was like, no, of course, of course, I'm going to, I'm going to tell them Bible stories at night. And I'm, I'm going to tell them stories from the Torah at night. And I just want to be a mother. And this is all just like on the side. I'm not, it was like immediate, like clean up PR mode. Wow. And how you like submit? You just you were just so submissive. Where did you learn that? If you didn't date, like, how did you know how to be to like submit? Like, to... oh, I was like in immediate PR mode. I was like, he's gonna tell the shotgun crazy things mm, about me, and then okay. the shotgun's gonna tell my parents crazy things about me, and then I'm gonna get yelled at. Like, no, no, no. I need to immediately shut up and just like tease and a please and 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 just make up an excuse about why this date, like, why he's not working out for me. So he like drops me off, and he actually told my parents that he wants to go out again. um and i remember thinking in my head like oh my god he's an arrogant prick i don't like this guy but i can't say no because my poor mother is so excited and happy and like 
she spent so much on clothing and she's standing at the door waiting for me like Sarah how'd it go oh my gosh and I tried to very gently be like I don't think he's for me and my dad was like what do you mean I see him in synagogue all the time he's so righteous and God and he always prays and he's a good person and his family's a good family and you know all you need is someone who's like employed and good and stable and kind and I didn't have an argument I didn't have a response like what was I supposed to say he didn't respect my writing like that that it seemed so trite and I knew that my parents wouldn't understand it god bless them they're wonderful people um so I said oh okay I'd love to go out with him again fine and so I went out with him a second time and the second time I think I self-sabotaged because I was just very quiet I didn't say anything like he would he would ask me a question and I'd be like I don't know so what are your hobbies I I don't know (laughs) Like, you gave so, him what you uh, thought he what he wanted. Talk to me about like school. I I like learning. It's nice. Like it was, I was so ridiculous on that day. And then he went home and he told the matchmaker that he wasn't interested in the third date. And my parents were so disappointed. And I kind of pretended to be a little disappointed. I was like, oh, it's okay. Like the next one will be better. But that's like the only date that I remember. The rest of them, I think, I just blocked out from my memory I don't these are all from the matchmaker the dates that you're yeah I started when I was 19 I I continued all the way up until I was like 25 26 but did you want to get married at 19 did you think you want to be married at 19 or do you think that was just culture of growing up what did you think like I honestly I I don't know I think I really a big part of it was just wanting to make my parents happy and like not wanting to cause them any pain another part of it was praying that maybe 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 I might meet someone who's different someone who's also kind of pretending to to wear like not pretending that's the wrong phrase someone who can wear the black hat and be part of the community but also have a different mindset and be different like I kind of slipped through the cracks somehow I don't know how I turned out the way I turned out but I just remember praying with every single date that hopefully this guy is different maybe he also slipped through the cracks maybe he also tries to learn and tries to like maybe he's different and a lot of them were just not different and a lot of them just didn't really know how to handle me maybe I didn't know how to handle them I think I was judgmental of many of them I think many of them were judgmental of me but um I just remember coming home so often being like no no and my poor mom was always like but why he has a job he's a good person he has a job (laughs) he's a good man he he treats he prays he keeps kosher he keeps shabbat he's employed everyone says such nice things about him like why I don't I don't know I don't know Jared and until today I still like, I still don't know if I'll find that person. That's why dating has been so hard for me, is that I, I've never found that person who's, like, that in-between. Well, and I don't know if it will. I don't know. But dating is a scary topic for me. <laughs> do you think Do you think it's because, do you think you were ready to date? Do you think that you were introduced to dating too early instead of, like, seeing the world yet? I don't want to critique the system. I think that I myself personally, where I was in life, I didn't want to settle down yet. I wasn't ready. I didn't know myself well enough. I didn't know. I wasn't comfortably settled in my religious identity and my personal identity. I wanted to go to college first. But I will say this. The system works for many, many other girls. Um, A lot of my friends are now married with three kids, four kids, and they're happy. And honestly, I'm a little bit jealous of them because I'll see that they have that person that says, I love you every single night. And they'll have such beautiful babies and beautiful Shabbat dinners. And... I'm like, I'm on my own. You know, I have, I go to my apartment and it's empty and I wonder, will I have that someday? Um, 
there are there, the system works. There's a lot to critique, but there's a lot to praise because there's no sexual activity. There's no touch. Um, the first time that in an Orthodox or Hasidic wedding, the first time that a man and woman touch is after the chuppah on their wedding night. Yeah. After the ceremony, the first time they kiss, the first time their fingers will even brush is after the ceremony on their wedding night. And there's so much power to that. Um, I think it, it works because it's so practical and goal oriented. You don't find, you don't like move in with someone and date them for four years and then find out, oopsie, they don't want to have kids. And I do, I wasted four years of my life. You don't, you know, start dating someone and find out that they're a cheater or that they, you know, are wanted for, <laughs> they have a rap sheet the size of like, yeah. you know, pride and pride, like whatever it is. You, you basically know every single thing about this person before you even go on a date with them. And I'm talking health history, mental history, family history. Do they pray? What's their family's socioeconomic status? What's their religious status? Do they want kids? What kind of schools do they want to go to? And even during the dating process, it's things as trivial as like, um, so what role do you want to play? Am I working and supporting while you're staying at home with the kids? How many kids do you want to have? Do you want to have a TV in the house? Like, I feel like all of the issues that crop up in marriage, a lot of them are addressed in this shidduch process of dating, which kind of makes the transition easier. Well, what's your deal breaker? Um, what's the deal breaker that you wouldn't have? Would you date outside of your race or what would you, what's your ideal man for your mom? What's your mom's ideal man? What's your ideal man? My parents would love for me to marry a rabbi. <laughs> does it matter what color the rabbi is or it doesn't matter? Just whatever the rabbi is. It, unfortunately, it does. I hate verbalizing this, but there is a very big stigma with marrying outside of the community. So, like, a Spartac person is really expected to marry a Spartac person. You can't Ashkenazi Ashkenazi I've had Ashkenazi people say to me, we won't date you because you're Spartac. Really? Um yeah, I've had people say that to me. Um, I've had, and I'm I'm certain that you know, even in the Sephardic community, like Syrians will tend to only marry Syrians. Um, they won't want to marry Moroccans because they view us as inferior. Um, I've also had so many stereotypes about being Moroccan. I've had people tell me, like, I've gone on dates where the guys were like, "So you're Moroccan? Oh, so I got to be careful because you have a temper." <laughs> um, or, "Oh, so you're Moroccan? So does your dad beat you?" Like th- these are things that Aerial people have types. said to me. Oh, right. And I just I just laugh about it. I'm like, oh, yeah, last week he broke my arm. The week before it was my leg. <laughs> they are great I dancers. Did. I was in Medicare and I danced my innards off. They are good dancers. <laughs> like, what can you do? You can either laugh about it and joke about it or you can cry and tear your hair out. You well, what know? about it like an um, Ethiopian? Is that like out of your question? Your dad would like, how would your dad view if you dated Ethiopian? Would he be upset if it was an Ethiopian rabbi? I think, my, I think my dad would be a lot more open-minded. I think my parents would struggle a bit in the beginning, but they would become a little more open-minded because A, I'm almost, I'm 28, and that's considered, like, super scandalous. It's like, oh, my God, she's approaching spinsterhood. It's like, marry someone, anyway. <laughs> um, um, I think, honestly, to answer your question, I think the biggest no-no, like, the biggest sin would be marrying someone who's not Jewish. Um, if, if you had to, like, list the sins in order of how egregious they are, the worst thing you could do to an Orthodox or a Hasidic parent is marry someone who's not Jewish. And then it would turn into marry someone who's not religious. No, Would you I'm be sorry, disassociated if you married someone outside of your religion? Would I be what? Would you be disassociated or would you just be frowned upon if you married, say, someone that was Hindi? So yeah, again, 
it depends really on a family by family basis. I have a friend who's Orthodox, um, and she was dating someone who is Italian Catholic. So her parents' reaction was to sit Shiva, which is the, the Hebrew commandment for mourning. Basically, when someone dies in the religious community, there's, um, there's like laws and structure in place. You sit Shiva for seven days, you tear your clothes, you sit on the floor, um, and you mourn their loss. And you have people that knew the person come and visit you and comfort you and talk about um, like what a great person they were. And there are prayers that are said, you're not supposed to shower or wash your body with hot water for a few days. You're not supposed to listen to music for a few days. You're not supposed to do pleasurable things. It's a period of mourning. Um, so this girl who was dating this Italian Catholic guy, her parents literally sat Shiva for her. Like they tore their clothes as if she had passed on and they mourned her as if she had passed on. Um, and they, they wouldn't speak to her. And then she broke up with him and she came back and they like welcomed her back. But then on the other hand, I know another girl who's Hasidish. Um, and she actually met someone who was Pakistani, um, not Jewish, Pakistani. And her dad was like, I am not supporting this. I am not paying for a wedding. I am not giving you any money, but you are still my daughter. And so we will like leave Brooklyn and like take a train to Manhattan to meet her and her like boyfriend in a bar in like the West village somewhere where nobody from their community will know them or see them. <laughs> um, and they'll, they'll hug her and kiss her and say that she loves her. And they'll then go home to synagogue and pray that like the boyfriend disappears. <laughs> um, but they're not cutting her off. They, and they tell the other kids in the family, the younger kids, you know, like, um, you know, she's, she's not doing a, a mitzvah. Like she's not with someone who's Jewish and hopefully God Hashem will, will like help her and we have to pray for her that she heals and that she, you know, comes back to her senses. But yeah, there's like wide extremes of reactions. You could have one family like sit and mourn as if you died. You could have one family say, we love you. We don't condone this. It really hurts us. We're going to pray that he like moves to Africa or whatever, (laughs) but we'll visit you in some like hole in the wall bar where no one will see us. I don't personally know anyone who's dating out of the tribe that their parents welcome that person in their home and say, come for a Shabbat meal. But I'm certain that they exist. Again, it's such a, like, depends on the family, depends on the case-by-case basis. My parents, personally, I don't know how they'd react. They would not be happy. They would cry. They would be in a lot of pain. But you're the favorite. Um, But God is is more. Like, have you ever seen Fiddler on the Roof? I have. He's a nice person. He is. Tovia, one of the most powerful scenes is how Tovia, at the end, has to decide between his faith to his God and his love for his daughter, who marries a Russian, like, a non-Jew, a Gentile. And her daughter is madly in love with him, and he's a good man. He's a kind man. He's he's gracious. Um, I forgot his name. The blonde guy. The Russian dude that she basically falls in love with and marries. Right? So there's a very powerful scene at the end where she comes up to him. As the family, the Jewish family was exiled. They were forced to leave Russia, right? Right. So Tufia is standing there with his whole family, and his little wheelbarrow of belongings and he's forced to leave his country because of the non-jews and he was abused his entire life by the non-jews and his daughter is standing right behind him with a non-jew saying papa papa i love you and he turns around and he says no i cannot accept this right and then she backs up and the screen zooms in on his face and he says I cannot abandon my daughter whom I love so much and I gave my life and sweat to. But if I embrace her husband, I am abandoning the God that I gave my life to, 
my whole life. I followed his path. So it's a really, really tough conflict. It's like, do you turn your back on that which you know your entire life, the God, the laws, the songs, the prayers, the traditions for 50, 60 years by accepting this person who also really represents the world that hates you, right? That exiles you, that persecutes you. Do you embrace that? Or do you say she'll come to her senses, she'll leave him, she doesn't know what she's doing, he hates her anyway, he's anti-Semitic probably at the bottom of his heart. Like, what, what do you do in such an instance? I, I, I can understand parents who face this conflict. It's a really painful one. I personally, if my child were to fall in love with someone who's not Jewish, I know for a fact I would welcome them into my home. I would not, but it's, it's not a religious thing. It's because I want my child to feel like mommy loves me. I could commit a really bad crime. Mommy loves me. Do you feel loved by your parents? I do, but I also feel like I have to hide parts of myself from them. And look, like many of us do that. Many of us hide parts of ourselves from our parents. Right. My mother doesn't know who I totally am either. Yeah. Like I, I want my child to feel like I can be gay and mommy loves me. I can be a thief. Mommy loves me. Like I want my child to feel like I will love them completely and irrevocably no matter what they do or who they are. And additionally, honestly, I've taught for 10 years. I've had so many experiences with parents. I've seen parents turn away their kids and guess what? Those kids don't come back. They find love elsewhere. It's like, if you're not going to love me, you're not going to welcome me. No problem. There's other people that will. And if I am telling my child, your loved one is not welcome in my house, they're not, there's no guarantee they'll come back. Right. They, you know, so I want them to feel like I can bring my loved one into my home and show them love and hopefully maybe bring them closer to Judaism. Are you the only, are you the only one that feels that way? Do your other siblings feel that way? I don't think my siblings feel this way because I think my siblings follow a very traditional, like, ascribed... So you're the only outcast in the family. Like, I honestly, some of my siblings, if they're hearing me having this conversation, I could I could hear them say, like, oh my gosh, Sarah, you would let a non-Jew, like, marry your kid? Like, what? <laughs> like, it would be a reaction of shock more so. It would be one of, like, I can't believe my sister is talking this way, <laughs> which is why I really hope that none of my siblings ever hear this podcast. <laughs> I think that I think that it's a you can, I think about like think about how many people growing up in this growing up just like you probably felt just like you and probably feel these feel these things but probably don't know it's okay to say this, you know? Like right. people just think well, like Jewish people are one way, but it's like this big sea of people from different different pyramids, different is. forms of the pyramids, different languages, different everything else, and your story is completely different because we got, we say, let's, let's just backtrack. We got a person who's grown up, you know, as like a second parent. You put, let's say you grew up with like weights on you a little bit, you know, weights that you didn't necessarily have to put on you, but you put it on because you didn't want someone else to hold these weights, you know? Yeah. So that's a, that's tough. That makes you strong. Of course, you're going to be strong because you're carrying weight that you're not supposed to carry. But your brothers and sisters and parents probably don't even know this about you. When they probably listen to this, they'll probably be like, wow, how strong is my sister? How or is like, in my house? holy shit, my sister is such a heretic. <laughs> no, you gotta think. You gotta think about. It. Sometimes when you don't understand, when you don't know a person, once you, like, that's why we start from the beginning. We start from the beginning. We go to the middle. We go like gradually how we get inside a person's yeah. life, how that person is. So yeah. would you say you don't believe in unequally yokedness? That's what the Bible says. In what? Un- unequally yoked. 
Ever heard of that? Amish Amish Aliyah? That's when, like, when people are from two different cultures and they blend two different religions and blend them together. I dated this Muslim one time, this Muslim girl, when I was in, when I was in the Netherlands. And it was cool, beautiful. She was from Morocco as well. Wow. Trust me, I took her to prom. Everyone, she was way older than me too. I think I was like 16 and she was like 22. But I was like, don't worry, nobody can tell. And, uh... (laughs) (laughs) Oh, gosh. (laughs) Yeah. I think I told her, I was like, I was like, everybody goes to prom. It's an American thing. So she went. Maybe she was 21. I don't know. I know she was older than me. But we enjoyed ourselves. We had a good time. The only problem was like when we talked about kids, she's like, I want my kids to be Muslim. And I was like, I, no. I no, like if we had never had kids, you know, sometimes you think. But at the same time, I'm just like, I don't know if I could do unequally yokeness because when you when it goes to kids, now like 10 years yeah. ago, so of course, but when you talk I, about kids, it's hard raising kids as two religions. Yes. I've had many opportunities, if you would. Like I've had interesting conversations and opportunities to have relationships with males who were not necessarily Jewish. Um, there was one person in particular, uh, a very kind, intelligent person, um, who I genuinely liked, but I always stopped myself from letting that relationship grow because I know deep down that I want a Jewish home. I want Shabbat meals. I want the beauty of the holidays of Purim and Hanukkah and Pesach. Like, there's a world of rich tradition and beautiful tradition, and I want that for myself and my children, and I'm hoping that my husband does too. Um, All right, folks, that was Miss B. That was part one of Miss B, and then on Friday we're going to do part two through the Orthodox lens. So she doesn't represent all Orthodox people, but this is her Orthodox experience about growing up Jewish and growing up in New York City. So thank you guys for listening. I want you to like, subscribe, rate, review, and we're going to put her email address at the end if you'd like to contact her, and part two will be Friday. All right, folks, my name is Jared Waters. This is the podcast One Man, One Tree, and a Hill. Have a wonderful night or day or evening, wherever you are in the world. Hey, you're live on the podcast One Man, One Tree, and a Hill. Say what up to the people. Now, this is when I see black excellence. It's Kenan Thompson, and I see this giant butt. I'm like, oh, who is that? Turns out it's Questlove. It's Dave Chappelle, Chris Rock. Eddie Murphy, and they're all sitting at the table, and I walk up to Eddie Murphy, and I was like, hey, Mr. Murphy, I just want to say you're the GOAT, man, and you're the coldest that ever walked the face of the earth. You got to break that thing over. She wants it private, but y'all not even together right now. So we haven't spoken about anything but the cat for at two least months. two months. And then I said, and I said, uh-uh, and I'm be the next Jamar Neighbors. And she was up like, I know that's right. <laughs> <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for listening to the podcast. My name is Jerry Waters, and I'll catch you next time. Like, subscribe, rate the podcast. Have a wonderful night, wonderful day, whatever you're listening to. I'll see you soon.